You're listening to a news report podcast from thebodypro.com, the HIV resource for healthcare professionals. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of The Body Pro, and I'd like to welcome you to our news analysis with Dr. Joe Gallant. One of the most critical reference tools in HIV medicine is a document that is periodically updated by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS. Entitled Guidelines for the Use of Antiretroviral Agents in HIV-1 Infected Adults and Adolescents, the document is put together by a panel of 35 people. The members are mostly clinicians and researchers from universities throughout the United States, but also include a number of advocates and HIV-infected patients. The guidelines produced by the panel provide an invaluable summary of the current state-of-the-art in antiretroviral therapy. The panel released its latest update to the guidelines on January 28, 2008. And I've asked my guest today, Dr. Joel Gallant, who is a member of that DHHS panel, to provide a summary of this update. Dr. Gallant is a widely respected HIV clinician and researcher. He's also a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. So welcome, Dr. Gallant. Part two of the U.S. guidelines for the use of antiretroviral agents in HIV-infected adults and adolescents has been released. Can you walk us through the most important updates? Sure. The most important part was the change in the what to start section for initial combinations for treatment-naive patients. And perhaps one of the most important changes was that Abacavir 3TC, or Epsicom, got promoted to a preferred regimen. It had previously been alternative. And meanwhile, AZT 3TC, or Combivir, got demoted, if you will, from a preferred to an alternative regimen. So now the two preferred nucleoside backbones are Tenofovir FTC, or Truvada, and Abacavir 3TC, or Epsicom. And the reasons are pretty obvious. I think the AZT3TC got downgraded to alternative because primarily the Gilead 934 study that demonstrated that Tenofovir FTC was superior and also better tolerated with less lipoatrophy, less anemia, less GI toxicity, and probably better lipid profiles than AZT3TC. So for, you know, reasons mainly of long-term toxicity and twice-daily dosing, that's no longer a preferred regimen which is really kind of a historic thing when you think about it, given how AZT was the first antiretroviral drug available, and Combivir has been such an important backbone for so many years. I wanted to interrupt and say it doesn't mean that people who are currently taking that or patients on this regimen should be taken off of it in any way. No, it doesn't right? say that at all. I know there are certainly reasons why you might consider that, given that the Gilead 934 study and other studies did show progressive loss of subcutaneous fat with continued use of AZT. So the story is somewhat similar to what we saw with D4T, but perhaps not as rapidly progressive. So uh, you could certainly make a case for that, not to mention switching from a twice-a-day dose to a once-a-day regimen. That makes sense for a lot of people. But the guidelines certainly don't come out and say that you should switch. This section is talking about how to choose treatment options for a person who's never been on therapy before. So what about the promotion of a back of your 3TC up from an alternative to a preferred regimen? Well, we knew in previous versions of the guidelines that Epsicom, or Covexa as it's called in some countries, was a alternative regimen, not because it wasn't effective, but because of the issue of a back of hypersensitivity. And now that we can test for HLA-B5701, that issue has subsided significantly. And so if you can test for HLA-B5701 and use Abacavir only in those patients who test negative, then the risk of hypersensitivity is low enough that... Um, it makes sense to consider this another preferred combination. So the guidelines specifically state that Abacavir 3TC is now preferred 
in those patients who have tested negative for HLA-B5701. This guideline addition has clarified it, but this has been known that it was going to come at this point. People suspected that it would happen. You can never know for sure, of course, mm-hmm. because the workings of the guidelines panel are not you know, public until they become public. But everybody kind of assumed, I think, that this would happen, especially after the Sydney conference last year where the data on HLA-B5701 testing became so convincing that it really left very little room for doubt anymore about the the utility of that test. There were a few other changes. Ritonavir boosted sequinavir got moved up on the basis of the Gemini study. It had been previously, uh, it was in a category that doesn't really exist anymore. That is a category called acceptable but inferior to preferred or alternative components. And on the basis of the Gemini study, it's now an alternative PI. And then in terms of options no longer recommended for initial therapy, nelfinavir-based regimens, D4T3TC as a dual nucleoside component, and the triple nucleoside combination of Bacavir, 3TC, and AZT, or trisavir. And so the trisavir was kept on that list for a long time after it was shown to be virologically inferior. It was. In the last set of guidelines, it was sort of an alternative to the alternatives. You know, it was kind of in a funny category that really doesn't exist anymore. That is to say, it would be acceptable to use it if you couldn't use the preferred regimen and you couldn't use the alternative, which didn't leave a very big place for it, but now it's completely off. Let me just point out some things that weren't discussed, and that is some of the newer drugs. So darunavir is not listed there, and we do know that there are some emerging data on darunavir for treatment-naive patients from the Artemis study that where it looked very good at the dose of 800 milligrams plus 100 milligrams of ritonavir, But the Artemis study is not mature. It hasn't been published yet. The numbers are still relatively small. So although I think a lot of us feel that darunavir will eventually have a place for treatment-naive patients, it didn't seem like it was ready for prime time yet. Similarly, raltegravir, while there are data looking very good comparing raltegravir to efavirenz, that's still preliminary unpublished data. So no recommendation was made on using that in naive patients. And then Maraviroc, I don't think there's much enthusiasm for using that drug in naives because of the need for tropism testing and the somewhat lackluster results when it was compared with efavirenz. So just to be aware that the guidelines committee is aware of these drugs. It's not that they're ignoring them, but they really need more solid data before they can make recommendations. Okay, so on to treatment interruption. What are the new recommendations, or are they the same recommendations? They've come out a little more strongly against treatment interruptions, and basically they say that with the exception of interruption because the patient's too sick or needs surgery or, you know, something like that, they do not recommend treatment interruption for any reason unless it's part of a clinical trial. And clearly this comes from the SMART study, which just showed that people who interrupted therapy had all sorts of problems, you know, in comparison with people who continued on therapy and not only in terms of, you know, loss of CD4 cells, but even the development of conditions that we would have thought were toxicities of treatment, but in fact were things that happened to people off therapy. So the treatment interruption section is pretty definitive about saying that there's no place for a planned treatment interruption, especially long-term treatment interruption in people with HIV. I noticed there was a little bit of a new discussion regarding the selection of an NNRTI-based regimen versus a PI-based regimen for first-line therapy. Do we know yet which one is better or stronger? Or I know there's different studies that have shown different things. I don't have that section in front of me to quote, so I'll just speak from my own opinion. But first of all, I think it's hard to lump these categories together. So, for example, it's hard to just talk about NNRTIs because basically you're talking about efavirenz and nevirapine, and the data for efavirenz are much, much stronger than for nevirapine in terms of just the quantity of 
studies and the results. So when we talk about NNRTIs, we're really talking about efavirenz. And then with boosted PIs or with PIs, there's also differences. So we know from the 5142 trial that efavirenz outperformed lopinavir, ritonavir, or Calitra in most ways, at least in terms of virologic efficacy. And it seemed to also reduce viral load more rapidly, to suppress uh, viral load more rapidly. On the other hand, there were advantages to the use of the PI in terms of CD4 response, and there are other data from other studies suggesting that people on boosted PIs may have somewhat better CD4 response than people on efavirenz, and also the consequences of failure. So if you were less likely to fail efavirenz, but if you did fail it, you had greater resistance consequences than if you failed the lopinavir ritonavir. So to me, it makes it kind of a toss-up. I think if I had to say from a purely virologic perspective, what's the best drug to use right now? I'd say it's efavirenz. But there are some real-world considerations that might cause you to choose a boosted PI. One would be somebody who's seen where you're worried about their adherence and they seem like treatment interruption is likely to happen in their future. Those people might be better off on a boosted PI because of the issue of resistance. And then, you know, there are these people who start out with zero T-cells, and some of them do great with efavirenz, and they have very good CD4 responses, but we also see these people who sort of get stuck at low CD4 counts, and I think there's some data suggesting that they may have better CD4 responses with a boosted PI. The question, I guess, is should that influence your decision of which drug to use? Or should you just go ahead and use efavirenz if that's the one you want to use and then see what happens? And then if they don't have a good CD4 response, you consider switching. We don't have a lot of data on that approach, but some data suggests that that approach may work. So I think it's impossible to say that one is better than the other. You really have to individualize based on on the patient. One thing I think we can say for sure, and I hope we can put to rest this idea that I still hear people saying that, you know, if you have a patient with advanced disease a high viral load or a low CD4, then you must use a PI. That is an antiquated notion that has been put to rest by studies like 5095 and 5142. Certainly, the height of the viral load should not influence your decision in that. I guess another open question I was wondering about, and I see that the guideline mentions a bit about it, is the question of whether there are benefits to treat someone during acute infection. Can you talk to that? Again, I don't have that section right in front of me. I don't remember there being a lot of new information or a lot of big changes in terms of that discussion. It's still an open question. It's why there are clinical trials trying to decide whether there is a benefit to early treatment. There's certainly plenty of hypothetical evidence to suggest that there might be a benefit, but we don't have the clinical data to say that this is helpful. And then the other question, of course, is if you do decide to start treatment in early infection, how long do you continue it? In the light of the SMART data, you kind of are nervous about discontinuing therapy, and yet it seems kind of funny to commit somebody to lifelong treatment just because they started very early. So we desperately need clinical data, and that's why I really strongly encourage people who identify patients at that stage to refer them to clinical trials when they're available. One of the things that the guidelines panel mentioned was that because a newly infected person is much more likely to be resistant to NNRTIs than to PIs, because it only takes one mutation to be resistant to non-nukes, whereas you'd have to have multiple mutations to be resistant to a PI. So let's say you're starting somebody with an acute retroviral syndrome and you've ordered a genotype, but that's going to take a few weeks to get back. You're probably better off using a PI-based regimen at least until you get your genotype results back. Putting them on an efavirenz-based regimen could be risky because, you know, if they turned out to have been infected with non-nuke-resistant virus. You're actually quoting from the guidelines. (laughs) That last thing I said is definitely from the guidelines. 
Okay. I wanted to make sure people understood what was yeah. in the guidelines and what was right. not. Okay. I noticed there was a whole new section updated about TB. How common is that in the United States right now? Well, um, we certainly not as common as in the developing world, but we do see a lot of TB, especially in our inner city populations and immigrant communities. So it's definitely something that people need to be aware of. So what are the new recommendations? Well, one recommendation regards skin test testing, and they point out that because TB skin tests can be falsely negative in people with low CD4 counts, they recommend that if you did a test with a CD4 below 200 and then they've responded to therapy, that you repeat the test after the response. That will give you a more accurate result. And then they talk about the issues of when to start antiretroviral therapy in people with active TB. And you know, I don't think they come out with a solid recommendation there's a lot of issues here. Certainly, one of them is drug interactions between rifampin and retrovirals. The other is the real potential for an immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, or IRIS, in people who start antiretroviral therapy during active TB. And so, in many cases, it's felt better to start TB therapy first and then wait to start antiretroviral therapy until you've reduced the disease burden from TB and minimized the, the risk of IRIS. On the other hand, Studies from Africa have shown that in people who wait too long, especially if their CD4s are very low, there's a higher mortality. Now, that mortality may not apply here in places like the United States, but it is something to consider, especially if somebody's diagnosed with TB at a very low CD4 count. So the discussion goes into the risks and benefits of early versus delayed antiretroviral therapy in that setting. Has the recommendations changed at all regarding a co-infection with hepatitis? I don't believe there's been a big change. Of course, with hepatitis C, there's really never been any specific issues about which antiretrovirals you choose. Hepatitis B, of course, there are because you want to be using, hopefully, two drugs that have active activity against both HIV and hepatitis B. So usually that would be tenofovir plus FTC or perhaps tenofovir 3TC. And guidelines point out the risk of discontinuing that, you know, HPV active therapy because of the risk of a flare of, of hepatitis. So that's the main thing. It's not particularly new, but I think it's just worth remembering that we need to try to be using two drugs and remembering also that entecavir has now been shown to have anti-HIV activity as well. So you don't want to be using entecavir without a fully suppressive heart regimen in somebody who's co-infected. So I guess we covered all the most important new things in the guidelines. I think so, yeah, because uh, the last conversation we talked about the other stuff, which was mainly when to start therapy. So when do you think there'll be another revision in the guidelines? Oh, boy, I don't know. You know, it depends on how rapidly the data come out. I know that I think there are still some sections of the guidelines that are being worked on. You know, this is always a work in progress. And rather than coming out with one final version all at once, they'd come out with the new sections as they're developed. But of course, when to start and what to start with sections of the guidelines have always probably been the ones that get quoted the most widely and that are referred to most frequently. And so I think we're in a situation now where those two sections are pretty up to date. But of course, over the course of this year, well, I'm sure we'll see more data about raltegravir in naives and darunavir in naives. And so by later in the year, these recommendations may be already be dated and we'll have to update them again. Well, Dr. Golan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. You're welcome. It's great to talk to you, Bonnie. This has been a news report from thebodypro.com. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice should not be considered substitutes for professional services and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebodypro.com. If you have comments or questions, 
please contact us at news at thebodypro.com.